There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. At the end of July, an American drone strike killed Ayman al-Zawahri, the nominal head of al-Qaeda. That group and Islamic State occupy far fewer headlines than they did a decade ago. But that doesn't mean they've been inactive. And toiling in the fields of South Korea's countryside, you'll find a growing crop of freshly minted farmers. We ask why so many young Koreans are giving up the city slicker life to work the land. But first... China's President Xi Jinping is venturing outside his country for the first time in more than a thousand days. He was first welcomed with trumpets and ceremony yesterday in Kazakhstan, where he met with Central Asian leaders. On the docket today is a meeting in Samarkand, in neighboring Uzbekistan, with his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin, who arrived by plane this morning. The two men have much in common, and Mr. Putin has had a solid ally in China during his invasion of Ukraine. But fortunes have shifted in that war, meaning their relationship status is, well, it's complicated. So of all the foreign leaders in the world, Vladimir Putin of Russia seems to be the one that Xi Jinping really does have this deep sense of a shared worldview. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. Vladimir Putin, who can be pretty chilly and aggressive, with foreign leaders that he dislikes, sulky with American presidents, pretty aggressive with Angela Merkel when she was German chancellor. He has spoken really pretty warmly of Xi Jinping. Putin says he has a very close relationship with China's president. They've met more than 30 times, I think, since they both became heads of their country. And, uh, you know, they've taken train rides together. They've had a a shared birthday party. They've cooked pancakes together, called each other their best friends. A moment that foreign governments really noticed was on the opening day of the Beijing Winter Olympics, the beginning of February this year, when this joint statement signed by Putin and Xi declared a no-limits friendship between their two countries. So why is it that they should have such a surprisingly close relationship? I think beyond the shared interests that China and Russia have, they have complementary economies, the two men do seem to genuinely see the world the same way. And this shared worldview is based on a deep suspicion of the West, 
of America, this idea that America is bent on holding them down, that America is a kind of declining, bullying hegemon, and that multi-party democracy, human rights, the rules-based order, that those are all just excuses for the Americans and their allies to try to stop China and Russia, these two great countries, from taking back their rightful place as some of the world's most important powers. And that shared sense of resentment and destiny and hostility to the West really does seem to bind these two leaders. For Xi Jinping, aligning himself that closely with Russia does carry a risk, though, because Russia has a much higher risk appetite than the Chinese do. And you're seeing the evidence of this with these setbacks for the Russian military, those scenes of Russian troops fleeing in disarray in Kharkiv and Donetsk in recent days. That's not what Xi Jinping wants to see, having offered his public support for Vladimir Putin's worldview and come pretty close to justifying the invasion of Ukraine using Russian talking points, even if China pretends that it is neutral and a peace-loving power that just wants to see the war end as quickly as possible. But do you think those setbacks to Russia could actually threaten their relationship? There's no doubt that these setbacks are bad timing for Xi Jinping. He is a month away from the highest stakes gathering of his career. We've got a Communist Party National Congress opening on October the 16th, at which he is expected to seek and be given power and ideological authority of a sort we last saw wielded by Mao Zedong. And so he's going into that Congress. It is an extraordinarily important event for him and for China. The economy in China is not in fantastic shape. His draconian zero-COVID policies are exhausting the Chinese public. And so at a kind of very basic level, if he could have chosen the context for this meeting with Vladimir Putin, he would never have chosen to meet Putin at a time when Putin looks incompetent and on the run in Ukraine. But China plays a long game and a few days of setbacks is probably not enough to change their fundamental belief that Russia is useful to them in this kind of grand confrontation with the West. So the risk to Mr. Xi here is really just that he has a friend, a close friend, who's not doing very well. That's right. And there are experts in China who are following this war, who are shocked by how badly the Russian army has been doing for months. But let's not forget that China has a formidable propaganda and censorship machine. The vast majority of the Chinese public does not know very much about what's happening on the ground and doesn't care very much. One of the sort of really striking things about the last half year is how little the suffering of the Ukrainian people cuts through here as a story at all. If you just watch the main evening state TV news, it's incredibly cursory. You know, Russia said it struck Ukrainians, Ukraine said it hit back, and then they get into what really interests them, which is that this is all America's fault. And the overwhelming bulk of the propaganda messaging we've seen from state media, but also from people like Zhao Li Jian, spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry, he talks about how the U.S. is the originator of the Ukrainian problem and is also its biggest winner. You know, state TV will show you images of American weapons being delivered in Ukraine. Uh, and then shots of the kind of the front gates of Raytheon or some arms manufacturer in the States and say that the American industry of death is profiting by prolonging this war that Ukraine was tricked into and that the, the, the Americans and NATO provoked by expanding up to Russia's borders. And that leads into the idea that America is behind this war, America is prolonging this war for its own profit, and that the price is being paid not just by Ukraine and Russia, but by Europe and the whole world as sanctions cause sky-high energy prices and food prices. They're far more interested in attacking America and the West than they really are in the course of the war on the ground.
So why does Russia's performance in this matter at all if the propaganda machine is so good, as you say? Well, though China is playing a long game and it's waiting for Europeans to suffer their way through a long, cold winter with high energy prices, if Vladimir Putin's war ended in abject defeat, that would be bad for China. China doesn't like instability. It would not like the West claiming a win. You know, remember that the Chinese message is that the West is in decline, that it's decadent, that it's selfish, that Westerners can't take any suffering and pain. So an abject defeat for Vladimir Putin would be a real problem for China. But almost anything else works for them. So if Vladimir Putin wins, that's a thumb in the eye for the Americans. If Vladimir Putin can claim some kind of messy draw, that's also fine. A weaker Russia that has to sell stuff to China cheaply, that suits China's purposes pretty well. And remember that China is always, always about China's interests. And fundamentally, all of these talking points about the evils of American alliances, the wickedness of NATO, that's not actually about Ukraine when the Chinese say that. That's about Asia. And it's about the fact that if China were ever to invade the island of Taiwan, they would be facing an American alliance and American sanctions. So when China talks about Ukraine and Russia, it's actually talking about China and its possible confrontation with America. But that does kind of tie these two leaders' fates together, which, as we can see, is, is a potentially very dangerous business. Do they get enough out of this other than a bit of ideological alignment? A fascinating dynamic is that these two leaders really do seem to have each other's backs. But as soon as you drop down a few levels into the machinery of government and scholars, there is a lot of mutual suspicion. They are not the same kind of power. The Russians are much more willing to take risks, to launch military adventures, to be wreckers of the world order. The Chinese are extremely calculating, extremely self-interested, but they are much more cautious. And you're seeing that play out right now, that for all of this rhetorical support for Russia, you're not actually seeing Chinese companies openly flouting sanctions imposed on Russia. You're not seeing them rush in to snap up oil fields and assets abandoned by Western companies. China is thinking of the long game interests of China at all times. And you can actually hear bits of frustration. Vladimir Putin said at an economic forum in Vladivostok a few days ago, that the Chinese are master negotiators. They, they drive a hard bargain. And you can see a kind of mix of grudging respect and the fact that he needs China now because he is losing his allies and his trade partners in the West. But, you know, always this clear-eyed understanding that China is out for China. So implicit in all of this is trying to get inside both these leaders' heads, Xi Jinping in particular. And I know that's something that's been a huge preoccupation for some of our colleagues recently. That's right. The Economist has made an eight-part podcast series about Xi Jinping, about his youth, about his family, his epic rise through the Communist Party, how he has changed China, and how he may be trying to change the world. It's presented by my colleague Su Lin Wong, and it's called The Prince. And in fact, there's a, a sneak peek in the form of a trailer already up. I would invite listeners to have a look for that wherever they found the intelligence. When can we hear all of it? Uh, the series launches on September the 28th. I will keep an ear out for it. David, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. 
that's the whole premise of Money Wise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called Money Wise. That's one word, Money Wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find Money Wise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Over the weekend, President Joe Biden marked 21 years since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, by attending a wreath-laying ceremony at the Pentagon. I hope we'll remember that in the midst of these dark days, we dug deep, we cared for each other, and we came together. As well as commemorating those that lost their lives that day, he emphasized America's continuing resolve in the war on terror. It's not enough to stand up for democracy once a year or every now and then. It's something we have to do every single day. But while Mr. Biden's determination hasn't flagged, the adversaries being faced are very different from what they once were. America has now assassinated both of al-Qaeda's first two leaders, Osama bin Laden, of course, and more recently, Ayman al-Zawahiri in Kabul. Shashank Joshi is The Economist defense editor. It's assassinated successive leaders of Islamic State, or IS, in Syria. It's assassinated the first five heads of Islamic State in Afghanistan. This is industrial-scale leadership decapitation. But these jihadist organizations are really still pretty robust in some ways. And what's really important is that their network of affiliates around the world is still very robust. The jihadist movement has changed, but it has become much more decentralized in recent years. Let's park the decentralization for now and just and just get caught up to date. The war on terror has been going on for two decades now. And as you mentioned, America has been successfully taking out the top figures. What kinds of organizations are al-Qaeda and IS these days? Well, John, there's no doubt that they're shadows of their former selves. They're much less capable of launching overseas attacks in well-defended, well-equipped Western countries that have invested huge amounts in counterterrorism resources. You know, it's been 13 years, for example, since al-Qaeda's last big plot against America, which was a pretty botched effort to blow up New York subway back in 2009. And if you look at Ayman al-Zawahiri's leadership from 2011 to 2022, it was a failure. You know, he didn't mount any really big attacks in America or Europe, He didn't succeed in toppling any of the Arab regimes that al-Qaeda deeply dislikes, the government in Saudi Arabia, for example, or the government in Egypt. And if you look at Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, which, of course, were an offshoot of al-Qaeda in Iraq and had their own very prominent, very successful caliphate for a while in Syria and Iraq, that fell apart. That was collapsed by a Western military coalition. And the group is now pretty much in insurgency in its former strongholds in Iraq and Syria. So it sounds like they're weaker than they once were, but is that the entire picture? It depends what your baseline is. If you look at Al-Qaeda, it's undoubtedly weaker than it was 20 years ago. But if you look at it relative to last year, look, last year the Taliban took over Kabul, and it undoubtedly is more fertile ground for Al-Qaeda than it was under the Ghani regime, under the US-allied government in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda now has an advisory role with the Taliban's government in Kabul, It has really close ties to a group called the Haqqani Network, which is a sort of autonomous unit within the Taliban. 
And the Haqqani network has responsibility for the interior ministry, which means it has responsibility for citizenship, passports, travel documents. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters if you're interested in facilitating travel for the purposes of launching attacks on foreign countries. Now, I don't know if al-Qaeda is going to be able to take advantage of that. The Taliban have an incentive not to have them mount some kind of huge attack on America, because we know what happened the last time that occurred. The Taliban were uh, toppled in a U.S. invasion. But I think it does show us that al-Qaeda have more freedom of maneuver than they did. But I think what's most distinct about al-Qaeda and Islamic State is that their core organizations, their leadership, are not necessarily the most threatening or the most significant parts of the groups as a whole. That's really interesting. Can you tease that out for us? Yeah, I think when we used to think about al-Qaeda, we thought about the leadership sitting in Pakistan or sitting in Afghanistan. But what we have found is that the center of gravity of jihadist activity has really shifted. And it's shifted in particular to parts of Africa, to the Sahel. So the Sahel, which is this this huge, very poorly governed stretch of territory to the south of the Sahara Desert, it includes Mali, it includes Niger, it includes Burkina Faso. That's now the world's terrorism hotspot. That last year accounted for more than a third of all terrorism deaths. It includes, for example, the group called Jamaat Nasser al-Islam wal-Muslimin, the support group for Islam and Muslims, or or in its acronym, JNIM. That's a coalition affiliated to al-Qaeda, and that has conducted some of the most significant, some of the deadliest attacks in that region. In East Africa, you have al-Shabaab, which is another al-Qaeda affiliate that controls large parts of rural Somalia. And then in Nigeria, you have Islamic State West Africa province, which is an offshoot of the main Islamic State organization. So in other words, you have this patchwork of organizations, of affiliates, that are spreading absolute havoc around these pockets of Africa. And in many ways, they are more effective, they are more vibrant than the parent organizations that we think of as being Islamic State or being al-Qaeda. What about the Western response? Obviously, we saw a very strong Western response to al-Qaeda and Islamic State before, but these days, their their plates are a little more full. Absolutely. I mean, there have been some big counterterrorism operations. France has been running an operation in Mali since 2013. That was meant to be a very brief intervention. It turned into this grinding nine-year struggle against jihadists affiliated to al-Qaeda and to Islamic State in the Sahel. The last troops only just left. And part of the reason they left is because it wasn't going very well. The local government, you know, just didn't didn't really want them there and made life very difficult. In many other places, we see America is still conducting periodic raids, drone strikes, of course, most recently in Kabul against Zawahiri himself. But its attention to these problems has declined. The number of airstrikes under the Biden administration in these areas, uh, in these countries to which most Americans just don't pay much attention, they have absolutely plummeted. So let's end on, on the big picture. These groups have changed operationally. The territories they're operating and have changed. Do you think they're still as dangerous as they were 20 years ago? I would say absolutely not. They're not as dangerous as they were. And we, as European governments, Western governments, have got a lot better at monitoring them. But I would say that it would be really dangerous to get complacent. These organizations still have an interest in conducting attacks abroad. They haven't given up on that. And the danger is that one of these organizations, 
whether that's Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or one of their far-flung associates, franchises, affiliates, is going to incubate an external attack capability over time, particularly if we take our eye off the ball, we devote less resources to them. And I think that that is going to be a long-term challenge to keep Western governments interested in that at a time when they have so many other big, huge uh, security issues on their plate taking up attention. All right, Shashank, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you, John. If you like the crisp style of The Economist, sign up for Economist Education's six-week online course on business writing and storytelling. Learn to write with clarity, punch, and pith, and gain the tools to become a more effective business communicator. The course is designed by many of the journalists you hear on the show. Register now and enjoy a 15% discount as a listener to The Intelligence. Go to economist.com slash writing course and use the discount code intelligence at checkout. Kim Jiyun, a 23-year-old from Seoul who started a farm last year in Donsan, a city in South Chungcheong province. In Seoul, she worried about finding a good job and a decent place to live. But now she frets about the strawberry planting season. He came to Nonsan right after university, having never lived in the countryside. But she's not the only one to have made this choice in recent years. Hyun Shin writes about South Korea for The Economist. So Miss Kim is part of a phenomenon called Kwikchon, which in Korea means returning to rural life. It was coined a millennium ago, and the movement increases during periods of economic hardships since people in the city are forced to move back to their hometowns. However, unlike the meaning, young people like Miss Kim, who have never lived in the countryside before, are going to rural life and taking up farming. Because it's become a a period of economic hardship? That definitely does play a factor since it is hard to get city jobs. But more importantly, it's about how the new generation cares less than earlier ones about getting a job in prestigious jebo companies like Hyundai or Samsung. They've seen their parents overwork and how unhappy they were. It's also very easy for them to get into farming since they can use digital technology very easily. They can use social media like Instagram or Naver, which is South Korea's biggest search engine, and they can just promote and sell their fresh produce in one or two clicks. But also the government is playing a massive role in helping these young people as well. How so? The South Korean population is declining very fast and rural areas are impacted the most by this. In addition to that, South Koreans have a tendency to flock to Seoul, which means Kichon would be the best way to revive the regional economy and at the same time help young people find appropriate jobs. 
So the plan is actually working since in 2021, nearly 380,000 people moved to the countryside, which is up 15% from 2015. And almost half of them were younger than 40, which is a record high. You suggest that it's comparatively easy for them to, to sell their wares on social media and the like, but that's not, that's not all that farming is. Do they get some training? Yes, they definitely do. There is a centre called the Beginning Farmer Centre, which is a government-affiliated institution, and they're located all over the capital in Seoul. The centre teaches basic techniques such as how to use a tractor or select the best crops to advanced ones like how to prevent bug infestation or how to select the best greenhouses, for example. They also arrange a trial period in the countryside and during this time these aspiring farmers live and work under the tutelage of an old hand, learn about backbreaking work and so on. But these periods are very important since they boost chances of a successful transition, which is why the centre actually recommends it to all of their participants. So there are lots of, of cases of successful transitions, the city slickers that become uh, good farmers? There are definitely success stories, but also there are a lot of struggles, especially for the ones who have never lived in the countryside. Since life is much more communal in the countryside, which means the city newcomers are expected to abandon their urban ways. So, for example... When you are sweeping your doorway, you need to sweep not just your own, but your neighbours' doorways as well. Otherwise, the neighbours in the countryside would be very offended. But on the other hand, the villagers also offer tips on how to act towards the newcomers, especially the young ones. And the centre also provides programmes such as role-playing for them as well. But that part is not yet a total success. Miss Kim, as she says, her neighbours are not as friendly as she hopes, and she still often misses the city. She told me she hopes to maintain both the city and the countryside life, going back and forth between the two. If she's successful, she'd have the best of both worlds. And as for unfriendly neighbours, well, those are hard to avoid in the city too. Hyun, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.